Social involution. That's our podcast. You said that pretty good. Uh, and people would tell me, oh, you're going to be a good mom. Look how much you love your dog. <laughs> like, you, you mean I'm going to be a crazy mom? I've never loved it. <laughs> I, would, I don't think I can love my kid as much as I love my dog. <laughs> I worried about that, actually. <laughs> In fact, um, when I was pregnant with Noah, my pregnancy dreams was giving birth to a chihuahua. That's on. <laughs> Should we start it there? <laughs> Welcome to the spiritual... Involution. The spiritual involution. Did you really record that? I did. Okay, so... Wow, do you want to... I'm David. So David asked me if I regret having kids. <laughs> wow. I thought that was a private conversation. Well, no. Uh, well, now it's our topic. All right. Did... And um, then he equated it to having dogs. No. <laughs> You have to be. You have to erase this. We have to start all over. We can't erase it. No, but I said, <laughs> people usually hate that when you like people without kids mention their dogs, and I told him, no, I think it's a good thing, as close as someone without kids could get, because I was obsessively in love with my Chihuahua before kids, to a point where people were concerned that I loved this dog a little too much, and I think maybe I did. Mm -hmm. But it was a similar love to how I love my children. And maybe that's why I dreamed about having given birth to a chihuahua. So this is while you were pregnant, you had a dream about giving birth and it was a chihuahua. Yeah. Huh. And it was maybe because that's the closest kind of love. But you were saying that you couldn't imagine a time of your in your life without a dog. However, there were moments in life like when you were water skiing on the delta that you wished you didn't have a dog because you know you don't want to end the fun and go home and yeah i wasn't exactly i wish i didn't have a dog so much as i had the experience of a lack of freedom because i would love to have stayed out on the water but i knew i had to go home and let the dogs out yeah so there was um there was a, a limited freedom in my experience and so. i i think that's similar <clears throat> to be to being a parent in a lot of ways, hmm. not as extreme because, like you said, you can't. No, you, you can leave a dog in the backyard and not go to prison. <laughs> right, you can leave a dog in the backyard. Uh, they don't talk all the time, but do kids talk all the time? Th yeah, that's what I was telling you. Is there's times when it's just the freedom or the desire to just sit in silence, and uh, yet you want to be a present person for your child and make them feel like their voice is validate, validated and that I want to hear their opinion. Uh, to me, these are very important things. So they grow up hopefully feeling heard. But there's times when I just want to say, stop talking. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> um, but overall, I would never say that I regret having kids. I was saying <clears throat> to David, though, looking back, I, I think I was naive on how difficult it was and perhaps would have learned a little bit more. Yeah, what, what would you have liked to have learned a little more before you had kids? Well, this is another thing that we could go into, but I have been playing this game with the universe where I have begun to read books that are just thrown into my view for some random reason. Like, I don't know why, and it's often on social media. Somebody will post a book they like or reference a book that or something will be referenced a few times of a of a book and I'll just buy it without 
very much knowledge about it. I just said, say, oh, the universe wants me to read this book. Okay. And so the last book that I bought, which I'm currently in the middle of, um, I'm doing it audibly right now, is The Body Keeps the Score. And I forget the author's name. It sounds a little odd. His last name's like Vander Clock, I think. Okay, so The Body Keeps Score or Keeps the, the Score? I think it's The Body Keeps the Score. And ironically, as I started reading that book, last Sunday, we had a guest speaker named Brenda Wade, yeah. who talked all about trauma, which is what this book is really about. And then the preschool that I take tests to, they're doing a workshop and they mentioned this book in the workshop that they're doing. The Body Keeps the Score? Yes. Dr. And I, Bezel van der Kolk. Van der Kolk. There van we go. Van der Kolk. And again, it's about trauma. And as I'm listening to this book, I realize there's a lot that I didn't and have not completely discovered in myself that I think could could make could have made me have a, have a better birthing experience. Although I'm really glad the kind of birth I had. I knew enough then that I wanted to do it naturally. I knew enough then that I wanted to listen to my intuition. But there's a lot of things that this book is going into that's sort of revealing of how much trauma we hold either from our own birth, through our childhood and in infancy even, to even epigenetically, like ancestral, you know, what's held in our DNA through stress. And everybody has trauma, whether they want to realize it or not. There is an element of how we cope it's often tied into our childhood design, how we were how we were raised. And I wish I really understood that because as I'm learning it now, there's already um, developmental milestones I've missed, you know, that I was wondering like, I wonder, was I, they're talking right now about attunement and how oftentimes mothers inadvertently might miss certain cues that their baby's giving and it causes the child to feel unheard or disrupt their um, ability to cope, many things, right? And you have to be really in alignment with, with what they're trying to convey without talking, right? So I just thought, wow, this would have been a fascinating book to what read. Kind, what kind of milestones? The first two years of life, you know, before the baby, the nursing process even is, is, is attunement, you know. Uh, I was talking to the woman who runs the preschool that I go to, who is also my doula, and she's very, this is her wheelhouse. She's, you know, all about healing from birth and onward, even before birth. But she said, <laughs> I, always, I always say one of the most fascinating things that happened for me during my natural birth was after both of my kids came out, they army crawled to my breast. No joke. I was like, what is, what is Noah doing? It's so weird. But they, they lay on your tummy and they will migrate to your boob. And my doula was saying, we take so much away from the birthing process that we question the ability for the mother to understand the child, and it will tell you everything. They give you these clues that you have to alternate the breasts every time or ways to pump up your um, supply. And she said, the baby will just know which boob to go to. You don't have to remember which side. Just the, If you're in tune with the baby, the baby knows. You are in alignment with each other and just little things like that and in the book they were just 
talking about how the baby was um, fussy, laying on his back. He hadn't crawled yet. And the mother wasn't paying attention to the fact that something was bothering him. So she got closer to him and was doing all this kind of more aggravating things, which made him more fussy, which leads to some complicated bonding issues. I mean, it's, I'm not explaining it very well. I'm following. And there's a lot of studies thrown into the mix, but I guess my point being like, I don't think I've really resolved a lot of issues with that. And um, it would have been nice to have read this book before, just to understand understand that a little bit more, since it's it's foreign to me, and I and I wonder what that would have done, you know, especially in those early years when there's a funny. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but there's a funny. There's a funny way about the way we parent in our society, American society. It's like my way or the highway. Uh, you're this lofty person that, you know, your child must listen to. Yeah. And this idea of you guys being equals on the sense of we're both souls trying to communicate is lost a little bit. And I think there's something really powerful there. And that first attachment to your mother can really... At least if he's correct in his thinking. He being Vanderkolk. Yeah, Vanderkolk. Um, if he's correct in this thinking, it can, it can really. I mean, he talks about pe- people being disorganized. If you're a disorganized person, it can come back to this kind of thing. Or if you disassociate, you know, if you're numb to the world, if you handle stress that way, it could come back to this. And it's just kind of fascinating. And I was looking at my own birth story, you know, as a C-section. So I came out as a C-section and my mom then got an infection and I was separated from her for five days. Like I couldn't, I could not see her. And I always wonder, huh, I wonder what as a small child, right? I can't remember any of this trauma. I was just born. But did that leave an imprint in some way of separation anxiety because I have a lot of separation anxiety. I've always feared people leaving me to a probably a level that's more than most. And it just made me curious. Like I wonder wonder how much could be attributed to that or or is this all just fluff? I don't know. Huh. What do you think, David? I think I love listening to you talk. My world get, my world gets bigger. Um, my curiosity, uh, my curiosity comes alive. I, I, I will probably never know. I probably will never know much of what you're talking about because I don't have kids. But you could know internally. Do you? Well, actually, I was thinking. I, I don't actually know if I was a natural childbirth. I don't know if I was C-section. I have assumptions, but I don't really know. Do you remember how your mother? talked to you or yes I was just thinking this week (laughs) I was just thinking this week um that when I was a kid and I wanted to take it oh I know why some friends were talking about uh they they saw well forgive me for mumbling here it is I was in my living room talking to some friends and all of a sudden there was outside my window a whole a whole bunch of hummingbirds and I was describing to the two women on the other line, that, wow, there's a bunch of hummingbirds right outside my window. And one of them said, maybe it's your mother coming to say hello. Maybe it's your father. And and I immediately thought, no, because, and they said, well, how do you know? And I said, 
I just I just sort of know. And then I was I was remembering that um, when I was a little kid, and there's probably no association here with hummingbirds, but my my communication with my mom and dad was always very clear. I never had a there was never I wonder what they mean. It was always very clear. And um, one of my earliest memories is my mother trying to get me to take a nap. And I didn't want a nap. But I remember she would sit on the edge of the bed and she would lean very close and she would blow into my eyes. And then my eyes would flutter because of the breath. They would just flutter and then, and then I would fall asleep. And to this day, if I'm in a car and the air is blowing on my, on my eyes, I almost want to fall asleep immediately. It's fascinating. <laughs> That is fascinating. <clears throat> but I have a very sweet experience of my childhood, both my mom and my dad. I don't know if it was real, you know, because some of my siblings don't have a, we don't share the same, the same recollections. But I have an experience that um, I probably was naturally childbirth, but I don't know that. Yeah. And I don't even know if there's anybody to ask. Well, it's more than just the natural childbirth. I think it also has to do with just those very first, even weeks of, of imprinting. And there's a lot of postpartum depression that can also affect how those initial imprints, you know, are formed, apparently. And my mom has this story about she was driving with me. I was just born. I was two months old. So two months in. She stops the car. She looks at me and it finally the bond happened. She said she started crying, thanking the Lord how lucky she was. But until that point, it had been alarming to her. Like it hadn't sunk in. Like the depth of love just wasn't there. And I'm wondering now if it's because of those five days that were, we were apart. You know, the, the initial bonding of breastfeeding didn't happen. And there's actual hormones that are released, like oxytocin, love hormones that happen in breastfeeding and in natural childbirth. And in the process of birthing without drugs, these chemicals are released that help that process, all of which was taken away. Then you have the fear, Hank, <clears throat> always a Hank bark. Then you have the fear of her own health, right? She, she was traumatized by the birthing experience. I mean, it was the worst labor story I've ever heard, and it was hard for me to get over knowing I had to give birth and her genetics were in me. I was like, oh gosh, this is, this is horrific. She almost died, and then she didn't get to see me for five days. Like, how much trauma is in that scenario, whether it's directed at me or her, and her having to get over it to finally be okay with being a mom for me, you know, like, she had me almost taken away. She almost lost her life. And then finally, after two months, it like dropped. Oh my gosh, I'm lucky. I have this beautiful baby. <laughs> but what happened in those two months of time, you know? So are you, would you say that you're damaged? Well, I don't know if I'm damaged, but I think we all have work to do. Even if it's, you know, our history of our, our ancestors looking at the trauma that could be passed down and just like mindfulness, right, the first thing is to be aware of your story or aware of it. And so you can understand maybe where your idiosyncrasies come from. Um, and it's uh, your homework kind of to, to delve into it a little bit and, and really get in your body. And I think that's where this book is going is 
if there's trauma stuck in there, it doesn't just stay there. It's going to express itself in your body and manifest in different ways. And so does anyone have does anyone have an ideal birthing story, an ideal bonding story, an ideal life? Well, I think I came close. I think the leap that I made from my mother's birth story to mine was a healing leap. I don't think it was a complete healing leap because I hadn't done the full work yet. I don't think I think I could have done more. But going from what I just described my mom going through to going through coming to me with no drugs, natural birth with a baby army crawling to my breast to bond. That is a huge leap that I'm hoping will be implanted in their DNA. And then my daughter's birth experience, I'm hoping will be even better. Like I'm really fascinated by this idea of our role here is to drop the baggage our ancestors gave us so we can free our future. And there's science now that says Holocaust survivors, their relatives carry these stress hormones in their DNA. It altered their DNA, causing issues in generations to come. If this is true, if this is true, I mean, I haven't looked into it enough to say it's true or not, but it's fascinating to me. Wouldn't that be interesting or hopeful to think about us doing the work internally so we can not pass on the trauma that was passed on to us? And and what a gift that would be, right? Yeah. You know, the um, one of the earliest things I recall from my biblical studies was the the statement, the sins of the fathers are passed to the third and fourth generations of their children. And and I I thought that was odd. But now I'm beginning to interpret that to mean the misworkings, the unworkability, the the wounds, the injuries of our predecessors are passed on generationally. And right. that would be exactly what you just said, although it might be interpreted differently. So as, as a person who's listening here, um, what if we don't have kids? Um, how, how would this information be relevant to anybody's life today in 2020? Well, I think even if you don't have kids, you could play a role in changing somebody else's DNA. You know, like being a, what you do, a messenger of freeing yourself from the trauma, forgiving yourself, um, detaching from certain identities, right? Um, loving yourself. All of this has an effect, just like the Holocaust had a, an effect on the DNA of those people that were in those concentration camps. We are creating an atmosphere that can either inflict trauma on people or heal trauma, whether you have kids or not. I think if you have kids, you have the benefit of potentially being a direct access to it through like, through my placenta, through the umbilical cord, you know, all the stress hormones that were there, all that stuff is like directly, I think, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's a big push to look at. Motherhood is, is essential to healing, I think, the trauma of the world. But we all have a role to play whether you have a child or not, I think. 
And it also does start with you, like healing your own, your own trauma so you can go out and, and start to heal the other traumas or be part of the healing. So I don't know enough about this, but it's been my noticing in the last five and a half decades that sometimes the acknowledgement of the injury or the wound of the past, whatever that is, real or slight or imagined, is the is a reinforcement and a reengagement and a reactivation, reactivation of said injury. Sometimes, sometimes for me, the way to to be liberated from something that's not working is to give up whatever it is that's not working. Mm-hmm. Even the ideation or the digging back or the looking for it. Yeah, I think, well, well Brenda, Brenda Wade, who came and talked, uh, somebody brought up a question about this, about they're really wanting to heal something traumatic. They've looked at it and it's still coming back to haunt them. Like they're trying to do all the work. They're willing to let it go, but it's just not going. And she made an insightful comment, I thought, was you embrace it coming back and you say, you know what? I obviously didn't get it all the first time. I'm going to look at you again. I'm going to resolve it. I'm going to let it go again. It might come back. It's not like one thing heals you. Hmm. But if you hide things and put things under the rug, I think we do ourselves and ultimately do a disservice. I think nothing just goes away until you look at it. If you look at it, come to grips with it and truly let it go, that's one thing. But to force it down or be like, ah, that's uncomfortable. Hey, I'm not sure I want to go there. That's really making me feel weird. I'm just going to go go over here and golf for a while. <laughs> I'm not sure that's, I don't know if that's healing. I, I, I follow everything you just said. And I'm wondering if there's also a, another another way that it's possible for something to dissipate simply from from um, discontinuing to breathe life into it. So I, I follow what you just said about squishing down and pushing down. And so much of my life has been doing that, you know, just push it down. But, but the older I get, the more I realize that uh, there's some things I don't even push down. They just, I just don't want to give it any energy and it just disappears. Not necessarily a pretending or faking, it just disappears. And maybe that's because I'm surrounded by people who are uh, like you and like so many of my network and my friends and my associates, maybe just being around high, high-minded, high highly evolved and evolving people, um, they tend to bring people up yeah. with them. So When you're but, saying that, what comes to mind is this uh, idea of... <clears throat> There might be a certain event that happens that can dissolve. But if there's a pattern or a structure that's occurring where similar events are happening or things of that nature, that's my, that might be where you have to go deeper and kind of look at why do I handle separation so poorly? Why do I get panic attacks when I feel like somebody is leaving? Or, I mean, this is a... Um, some, I've let it go, you know, it's not bothering me today, but is this something that's coming back all the time? It's like the, my go-to coping mechanism or my go-to way? And is it healthy? Is, there's certain things you know are not healthy, like they're causing something inside you. You can feel it in your body. Um, and if you don't look at those things, I think they manifest. And, uh, you know, I'm just... 
still haven't finished the book, but I'm wondering where it'll go with, because what I was... What, Your body keeps the score. Yeah. What I was wondering is, okay, I, I see where this trauma is. Let's say I understand the potential for trauma here. But like, I don't remember the event. I don't know how, how am I supposed to work on this? Like, it, it's just, uh, it's part of it's, maybe that's later in the book. Well, this is where spiritual practice for me, where spiritual practice becomes very valuable. Slowing down, really slowing down, spending time in nature, um, being more and more present to the gap between my thoughts. Um, in, in the quiet, I began to, uh, some of the noise begins to settle down and some of the eternal, um, ongoing, important messages reveal themselves, but also some of the, uh, the echoes or the replaying of tapes that I don't want become really clear and they begin to dissolve. So slowing down my mind has been very, very helpful and it makes it easy to be present. Yeah. Because there isn't a, in one of my circles, in one of my groups of friends, they have convers. They will call it a recurring conversation. We have often we have recurring conversations, and they're never resolved because um, we continue to have them. They continue to happen over and over and over. Anyway, so how are you today? Oh, how are you today? I'm actually quite quite content. Well, it's funny when you're talking about things that happen over and over. <clears throat> one other interesting thing about this book that I read early on in it was they have been looking at brain scans when people are looking at images that bring them back to a traumatic event. Uh -huh. um, for example, a war veteran, right? Or somebody who was raped or these are big things. <clears throat> And a part of the brain called the BRCA part of the brain um, shows up to be inactive, which is the same part of the brain apparently that stroke victims often get where they cannot voice what happened. Like they've lost their ability to speak about it. Okay. Which brings to light this idea of art. It, it brought art to me and... He was saying a big part of this, the struggle of resolving the trauma is literally the part of your brain that you need to, to use to talk about it because that's often how you release things is to be heard and validated and seen through a traumatic experience so you don't feel alone. Uh, I was thinking about there are moments in my life that were really traumatic and I always turned to art and it would feel so good after I would do something and it felt like I left my emotions on the, the painting. And it wasn't for any reason to make a nice painting. In fact, I think when John met me, I was, I was depressed partly because I was... John being your husband? My husband met me. I was taking a birth control pill actually at this time. And later I would see this birth control on the commercial saying, did you have suicidal thoughts on this birth control? You can, you know, win a lawsuit. Because I literally, I felt suicidal. But I thought it was so weird. I was like, I don't know why I'm this depressed. Like, it's really, ugh. And so I kept making these dark paintings to try to, like, release. <laughs> and John was like, what's wrong with you? This is, like, really dark. And I don't know. It's just making me feel better. But after reading this book, I thought, 
about art therapy and what role art could have in releasing things. And the parts, I think it's just interesting to see that our actual brain chemistry is changed in certain ways when it comes to probably anything, but you know, certain traumatic events, they, they shut down or activate certain parts of you. It makes you feel like a robot a little bit, like, well, you pull on this, this will happen. You pull on that, this will happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I was just fascinated by it. While you were, while you were speaking, it was occurring to me a question. Is it possible that um, not every technique will work for every person because there isn't a one-size-fits-all? Like, for instance... Um, art is a great avenue for you to have uh, and to to exorcise, to, to have an exorcism, if you will, to have a uh, um, a resolution or or um, uh, I've just lost the word a catharsis. Mm -hmm. um, I watched Mauricio, for example. Um, if he doesn't work out, he he starts acting like the person you were describing, like the person who actually needs to have art. Let's say. But when he works out really, really hard, he's like a transformed human being. And it, I don't think it's just because he wants to work out. Like mm -hmm. something happens, his ability to to have catharsis and freedom. That's how John is. I think for sure, nothing is one size fit all. Nothing I, in life is one size fits all. I have all, a colleague, right? a clergy colleague, who's also a licensed therapist in California. And this colleague was describing to me yesterday that... This colleague was referred by the county to a group of, of um, clients because this colleague teaches or uses art therapy as part of this colleague's practice. So art therapy was totally in my world yesterday as a conversation. I find that oh, interesting. Yeah, you could definitely see how it it works. I, I'd always thought it worked somewhat intuitively, but to see how it could work on a level of science, like, oh, the actual part of the brain shuts down that would help you talk about it. Oh, well, that's interesting. That's so interesting. Um, <clears throat> makes me wonder why that would happen. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So well, where are we right now? We're, we're 30 minutes in. We could... Are you feeling complete? Not really. I don't know yeah. where this is ending. But. Actually, I'd like to, I'd like to end, <laughs> for me, it would end with a question. And the question is, um, what am I noticing that might be a recurring conversation that's not serving me? Or a recurring conversation that's keeping me from, from expressing my nature? Is there anything in my past that impedes my ability to be fully self-expressed? That's what I'm asking myself right now. All right. And are there any mothers or fathers in the world who might benefit from who I am? Like, can I be useful to those moms and dads this week? I'm going to pay attention to that. Are there, are there parents who could use some support systems? I, don't, I didn't come over here thinking that was going to happen. <laughs> well, it's a, something powerful to think about. I haven't fully wrapped my head around it either. I just started reading this book and... I mean, it goes back to Michael Singer and Untethered Soul a little bit too, you know, detaching from things that don't serve you and really looking at the ego and all of these things that uh, I think many of us just don't take the time to delve into.
So I like your question. Me too. What questions do you have this week? I'm going to have that question. (laughs) Well, I like that question. I don't know. I I think I'm going to continue just delving into this book and maybe journaling more. Maybe even asking my mom a little bit about how she felt. She's not an emotional person, but I'm, I'm wondering. I mean, she did tell me that story about having to stop the car and crying. But I never asked her, like, and I know the birth process was fearful. She had a lot of fear. But what did that feel like for those five days? Like, what emotions stirred in her? Like, I'm curious. Huh. I'm kind of curious about her. her story. Yeah, I will. I'll ask her. All right, you all, if you have any suggestions or insights, which I'm assuming... I'd love to hear them. I know the people at our church are well-versed in this topic. I know a few, and I'm sure I'm butchering the book if you've read it. Um, I'm only halfway through as well. but uh, I hadn't even heard about it before today. Apparently, it's a big book in the therapist world. Okay, so what's the, what were you saying to the, the listeners? When? Just, just now. Oh. Just saying... Well, I, I think from talking to a few people at our the Center for Spiritual Living, I have a feeling many have read the book. Huh. I bet you. And many probably have really good insights and would be better at talking about this topic than I would be. So I'm pretty enthralled with what you were saying. Well, I don't think I did it justice. I feel like it's something to expand on, though, which is good and, you know. So maybe that's the, the um, that's part of the suggestion for people. There's a hummingbird right outside the window. It's your mother. It's, no, my mother would know. <laughs> my mother's complete. <laughs> well. Okay, I have nothing else. Have a great day, everyone. Ta-ta. Bye.